we have a very odd family. So there are my sister, my sister is also, so there are, there are literal heroes in my family. And, and I guess I was always feeling like I would never live up to my family's heroes. And I hope my children don't ever feel the same because I think that heroism falls in the cracks between those great big gestures that we see on movies and TVs. Welcome everyone, JCV Art Studios Season 4. My name is Joanna. This is my podcast. And today I have, actually I'm taking a chance, I have both dogs in the studio. Of course, they were sleeping five minutes ago, but it's almost like they know she's going to record. So now let's get up. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Um, I just, I've got to get off my chest what happened this morning. Just a quick little story about these two dogs. So we went out on our morning walk and uh, the little puppy who's six months old got off his leash. The little latch clicked and boom, he was, he, he ran. And I just, I was just about panicking. And I said, Pepper, come. He stopped and bless that older dog. The older dog barked and Pepper came running straight back to Ozzy, the older dog. And oh my God, I can't, I can't believe I got through that story without choking up. <laughs> Let's just say when we got home, I was giving handfuls of treats to Ozzy, right? Because he got that little guy back. How so, old is the little guy? The little guy is six months, six, seven months. Yeah. So, hey, hey, we're going to talk. We're going to talk to and with Jane Baird Warren. Oh, my gosh. She's written this. She's written lots of books, but this particular book we are going to talk about just so pulled on my heartstrings. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jane. She writes for kids and adults like her who still read middle grade and young adult fiction. Harry Potter was a game changer for her. Jane is a writer with an MFA in creative writing from UBC. Her writing has been featured on CBC Radio and in more more than a dozen literary magazines in North America, 
and the UK. In her fiction and real life, Jane is fascinated with people, but what she enjoys in both worlds is kindness and courage. (laughs) It says here she has a ridiculous memory for trivia, which she'd always believed was the most useless superpower a girl could have until she started writing. Jane, welcome. I'm so looking forward to our discussion. Me too. Thank you. Good. Now I'm going to spring a quick question on you. And to give you the heads up, um, like I said, I was so moved by your book. I've bought the actual book and I received the notification that said, uh, your book is being delivered within three hours. So if my doorbell rings and the dogs go crazy, it's because your book has arrived. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you for ordering it and mostly for wanting to read it because, well, you're a writer. Yeah. I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, if you write a story and nobody's reading it, it just feels like the act isn't complete. So I'm, yeah, I'm really keen on people to read it. I don't, for some reason, don't compartmentalize the, um, or I don't deal with the fact that, oh, I want it to be a bestseller. I just want people to read it because I think it matters. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So my quick question, I'm springing on you. Mm -hmm. I am... I'm going, I'm working towards my editor's certificate through SFU. (laughs) I'm doing structural editing. And I tell you, I told my daughter, I told my daughter, she used to send me her papers to proofread. And I said, Ashley, your mom can't look at a piece of paper anymore without having a pen in her hand. (laughs) So (laughs) now you're an editorial consultant and you provide developmental edits for other authors? Yes. Okay. Have you found no having the editing background has shaped how you write? Oh yeah, it's <laughs> it's so, torn I don't want to sound all poncy and um, fancy. I mean, yes, I'm an editorial consultant in that people will occasionally pay me money to edit their books. And yes, I do volunteer development letting, which I'm wondering if it's a little bit like your structural editing. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's it's looking at an earlier draft to make sure that it's of a writer's work. I'm yeah. not really keen on looking at a first draft, but something where they think it's almost ready and to try and figure out, is this saying what you think it needs to say? Where are the holes? Where are the gaps? And so does it help? Holy moly, does it ever help? Because yeah. I don't think you really get... Um, what you're doing in your book it because you know where you want to go you know what you think you said it's only till somebody has outside eyes so yeah. when I'm looking at somebody else's story I can say oh man I do that too yeah I do exactly that same thing and I find it astoundingly good so while it sounds all aren't I lovely I'm volunteering my time to do this it's really a little selfish yeah. pardon me yeah I, I agree because I was doing a homework assignment and uh it was okay. For example, and I first draft. I do this. She, let's say, your heroine. She sat down, and I, you know, I was doing this homework assignment, and I thought we don't need down because she sat. We got it. Yeah. She sat right, or she walked up the stairs. Or I, I, that's not a good example, but, but I know what you mean. Those little more words. than just the little words for yeah. me, it's the, and, and everybody writes differently. So I can't say this is your thing, Yeah. but when I'm thinking through a scene, I'm actually, 
I, I will write the character through every motion that's happening in the scene. And I did it yesterday because I'm in a, I'm at edits now and I'm doing rewrites and I have to rewrite an entire chapter. And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's this block of time. I need to know what she's doing in this yeah. block of time. So I need to know what she's doing next. So I write it all out and I think, what am I doing this for? Yeah. The reader does not need, nor do they want to see this bus trip. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. To me, no. you can, you can be a plotter or a pants or anything. You can know where you're going. Yeah. But until you do that, you don't really find out what's in your character's head and heart. And you don't really feel that the, the questions and the input that's coming in from stimulus around he or she. So, Go for it, write it, but make yeah. sure that you're not editing it at a line level when it comes time. Feel free to just say, okay, there's 5,000 words I don't need yeah. in the bin. Yeah, yeah. They don't need to know yeah. she's put on her shoes, she's put on her coat, she's slipped on her mittens. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. I still get this. Yeah. Okay, so your book, your middle grade reader novel, like I said, pulled on my heartstrings. It was a game changer for me. Sunday night, we have our regular calls with our oldest, your characters. And I was telling her, I was telling Ashley about, about your book. We have your characters, mm-hmm. David and Lizzie, and I adore them. Now your novel, it's how to be a goldfish. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's nothing to do with Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always curious why authors write what they write Mm -hmm. so was it what is it about the middle grade and young adult genre that appealed to you that you want to write in this age group I never intended to I um (laughs) I started off doing the MFA the Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing completely immersed in writing a Wayne Grady type novel where it was really a memoir but nobody would know it was going to be a fictionalized story and I you have to take in the UBC program, you have to take more than your genre. So I wasn't just doing literary fiction. I was also doing, I think I did translation and oh, I did, wow. um, uh, oh, Kidlet. Ah, that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had a, a prof called Glenn Hooser and he was kind and gentle, but yeah. the coolest thing was he introduced me to books that I had never heard of because I didn't read Kidlet as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't find anything. I'm not young. Yeah. And the books that were around had female characters that were rescued and they screamed and they were, but they didn't do things. So I went from reading, I literally went from reading kids books to, I remember being 11 years old and reading Nicholas and Alexandra, a big historical novel. And I read in grade nine, I read Freud's um, interpretation of dreams. I just, I mean, I probably didn't understand what I was reading, but I just read way above what was intended for my age. Yeah. So I knew that now that I knew that there were books out there like uh, Staying Fat for Sarah Byrne and um, Tuck Everlasting, there were beautiful books yeah. where there were no subjects off limits and they yeah. were written for kids. I thought, hey, that's nice. So then I started doing that and I fell into the kidlit community. And I have to say, <clears throat> it is the nicest community, not just in Canada, though the Canadian one is extremely cuddly, but yeah. worldwide. And they are supportive. I mean, I've got emails this morning or yesterday from this spectacular female writer in Switzerland, one in North Carolina, there's one in Scotland, one in Germany, well, used to be in Germany. And we just write to one another. And 
support one another. And this is not something I remembered <clears throat> as strongly, though I do have great literature writing friends that I'm still in touch with and I still read and they still read me. Um, that this kind of universal, cuddly, kidlet support, that's the kind of world I want to live in. And when you think about what's going on now, yeah. it's pretty ugly out there. So finding that kind of support and caring and love and people wanting to have positive messaging, yeah, I'm there for that. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I thought so. I thought so. Well, <clears throat> okay, you're another one of these authors. The town Lizzie and David live in is called Scotch Gully. And you write it so believably that I actually Googled Scotch Gully to see <laughs> if it was a real town in Ontario. <laughs> it's, 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 it's imaginary. Yeah. It's all in my head. Actually, my agent asked me the same thing. So Scotch Gully was a town I created for my master's thesis novel. Okay. And I have to, I mean, I drew maps. I could paint the inside and outside of everybody's home. I know exactly what it looks like. If I could paint, I could do it. Yeah. But the only thing worth keeping, I'm afraid, from that novel was the town. And I just wouldn't let it go. So I just started putting different people into yeah. the town. So that's that's where Scotch Gully is. Plus, my mother's Scottish. So Cool. Okay. <laughs> now, and we're, we're going to get into that um, a little later. So, Lizzie... Your heroine, when the class finds out that they must write about a living hero in their family. I'm just going to quote a little bit, if that's all right, of what you've written here. Okay. So Lizzie, she says, I've only got two people in my family, my mom and grandma. They're great and all, but they're not very interesting or heroic. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I regretted them. I knew better than to draw attention to my family. I looked around the class expecting the worst. To my surprise, most people's heads were nodding as though they were thinking the exact same thing about their families. And I saw that. I saw all the kids at their desk just kind of nodding their heads, right? So I thought, who's the hero in your family? <laughs> well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. What I was hoping that, to get out is that p kids would see their parents as ordinary and boring and dull and never doing anything exciting. And then they would dig a little deeper and maybe find out what their parents' real stories were. Yeah. My family history is full of heroes, villains, and oddballs. So I, <laughs> I mean, it truly is. My oh. father was... is. Uh, was Norwegian okay. and was living in Oslo at the time of Quisling being the mayor and the Nazis occupying and Quisling handing over the keys. And he wow. escaped and went to Sweden and worked his way north and was in the ski patrol. I mean, and then my mother's, <laughs> we have a very odd family. So That's there are so my right. sister, my yeah. sister is also, so there are, there are literal heroes in my family. Yeah. And, and I guess I was always feeling like I would never live up to my family's heroes and I hope my children don't ever feel the same yeah because I think that heroism falls in the cracks between those great big gestures that we see on movies and tvs it's it's caring for a family but my dad was an immigrant and yeah. and um you know he worked at the Ford factory growing up in Ontario when the Ford factory went on strike he didn't know if he'd be able to pay the mortgage so yeah. he went out and picked tomatoes to try yeah. and you know pay that last few dollars on the mortgage yeah. in fact he was picking tomatoes when my mother went into labor with me. And because I came out um, bum first, as she says, I have sort of faced my life most of it since. 
and I'm old enough that it was a time where he had to sign off that it was okay for her to have surgery. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they had a hard time finding him. And yeah. wow. anyway, it's so you, showing your age, isn't it? <laughs> the, and you mentioned about your father picking tomatoes. Mm-hmm. When my parents first came out from Hungary, they were working in my father's tobacco field. Okay. And my mother... Oh absolutely hated it yeah right? that stings yeah yeah and she was she was so happy when they they didn't have to work in the tobacco field anymore right were they from around london ontario oh gosh um i'm just thinking that there's great big tobacco centered industry there hamilton at the oh, time hamilton yeah oh, gosh. okay yeah okay yeah that's where i was born okay yeah mm-hmm. no but they did what they did to get by, you know? Yeah. Can you imagine what it would be like to be, I mean, I've lived in different countries, but I've lived in different countries where I didn't speak the language, but it was as an expat. So the company looked after us. I didn't have to go through the worrying about not speaking the language well enough to get a job. Right. And, and being able only to do menial work because I didn't speak the language well enough to do anything else, no matter how clever I might be. So, I mean, I, first-hand experience in, in imagining how tough that would be and what my dad did he didn't speak English my mom did she was Scottish but yeah. still yeah and your parents came from Hungary eh? Mm. yeah yeah and um when my mom also then worked as a can what she said at during those times they called them candy stripers well, okay? of course yeah and she said she remember when she was learning English one of the nurses said to her, oh, oh, Mary, we're going to get you an O. Henry. And my mother was just like, what are they getting me? Because she knew Henry was a name. And she was just like, what are they getting me? Dear God, <laughs> I don't want an O. Henry. <laughs> I'm not really not knowing at the time. It's Is a it chocolate, chocolate bar. bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, okay. So your book. This is on page five and and I you know it's for me as the reader I didn't know what I was getting into so it was such a surprise and it was such a pleasant surprise okay so I'm going to I'm going to read again and hopefully we won't be interrupted because the garbage man is now driving past okay so on page five you say well it said on the news there was going to be another rally in Toronto this afternoon because of those 300 men who got arrested in February for being gay and because of how badly the police treated them. My dad said Margaret Atwood gave a speech at the last big rally. So people like that who try to help would be quiet heroes, right? And this is Lizzie, right? This is Lizzie saying this to her teacher. Actually, it's it's Lizzie's um, friend in the class. It's the veterinarian's daughter. Right. Lizzie really likes her. Yeah. Okay. And <clears throat> there I am again. I'm Googling, and this really happened. Yeah. The bathhouse riots. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So what I was so impressed with is you're bringing this issue into a middle grade novel. And I was wondering what inspired you? What inspired you to talk about this? <laughs> So this is this is where it gets a little weird. It's okay. This well, this podcast so this is, is a safe zone. So yeah, <laughs> as long as so half of this is 
is a structural um, authorial challenge, which you'd be very well familiar with. You know, you have a story you want to tell, yeah, but you don't know how to best get it across. So you have to do an awful lot of gymnastics. It's like doing Curdle times 10. You know, you're okay. trying to bring all the pieces together. Yeah. But the Kickstarter was the 45th president of the United States. Yeah. So, and that's the truth. So yeah. he was the ultimate trigger because he was fanning the flames of so many hates, but transphobia yeah. was a big one. Yeah. Uh, this was supposed to be a sweet parent trap inspired mystery. It was my first children's book. Um, my first novel actually, that was going to hopefully see print, but <laughs> so that's... when this transphobia thing came out, I remember thinking, come on guys, we've done this already. Can't yeah. you remember well, when I was a young teacher? Um, it, it hadn't been that long since, um, it was legal to be gay. And by that, I mean, you could actually be put in jail in 1969 if you were gay. Um, we, and I remember then reading, you'd read articles about, uh, things like, uh, Turing, Alan Turing, who had a choice after he, um, solved the Enigma code and saved us from world war II. He, 1952, he was uh, jailed and given a choice to be staying in jail or have chemical castration. And then yeah. before that, it was Oscar Wilde. I keep strobing back in history, seeing all these times when we have behaved ridiculously. And for me, my comparison was, okay, here now we're looking at, um, we're taking trans people out of the military. We're mm-hmm. saying, which bathroom should they use? We're making a big issue. People saying, I don't know any people who are transgendered. Ah, what's all this about? This is all make, made up. And I thought, come on, guys. Yeah. Literally 40 years ago, my high school, or sorry, my first job, one yeah. of the administrators would come and brag about how he and his buddies would go to the park on the weekend and beat up gays. Oh. 40 years ago, that's it. Now for a little kid, 40 years ago is a, is a lifetime and a older than their parents, maybe the folks that are reading this. But if that guy looked back now or told his kids yeah. or his grandkids what he used to do, he would be mortified. In fact, I would bet money he would never do it. Yeah. We've come so far to a place of decency and mutual respect. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was try and figure out a way without telling, you know, wagging my finger at parents, kids, anybody yeah. who's reading it, but just making them say, Hey, look, um, how can I write a story to what it's like to be in a kinder place yeah. um, to show the changes society's gone through. And I might just be able to get a reader to notice that in 1981, Lizzie and David are shocked to hear how society treated their grandparents, people 40 years ago. And then maybe a current reader could imagine themselves 40 years in the future and think, geez, what judgments are we, society, government making today that might really look cruel and unreasonable in 2062? So this is not something the average kid reader, or even the average adult reader will get, but I wanted it to be there. And I, (laughs) this is where I don't mean to be arrogant, but I read something that Steinbeck said once that stuck with me. And I thought there's something I would aspire to. He said, there is a story there for people to just read and enjoy if they wish but there's more there. If there's a careful reader or a clever reader, they can find another whole level. And I'm not going to be able to hit that um, Steinbeck note every time, but I'm sure going to inspire to to do just that. And that's what I wanted here. I wanted a form and it was, oh, mental gymnastics. So to go back to your first question, why the bathhouse riots in 1981? Yeah. I knew that I needed a big block of time so that I could approach certain mile markers in um, 
society's treatment of gays and lesbians. And then I had to go and look for an event that was large enough and Canadian. So there were the Stonehouse riots in New York, which were huge and awful. And this is called often called Canada's Stonehouse. And it's it's a similar thing. It was just, you know, we're mad as heck and we're not going to take it anymore. So I actually had to start reading and learning about it. And the more I read, and if you read the articles, it's just, it's devastating. I just can't believe that in my lifetime, people were talking and behaving like this. And so that's, again, you asked a question, you asked me a question about um, characters and and Cameron Kelch, the the baddie. He is representative of society because there was a large part of society then who said, oh, no, I'm not homophobic, but. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, it, it pulled on my heartstrings and, uh, my daughter and I, my, our, uh, we have two daughters and our oldest, she's in her mid thirties and she's, you know, she's saying in, in her future, her and her fiance, they're going to have children. And what ended up happening is I pulled out some of the children's books I have purchased thinking about I say to her, one day I'll be reading these to your tiny Todd, right? (laughs) And uh, I told her, I said, um, I go, Jane's book. And I told her about your book. I go, it's going to be one of those books because, uh, yeah. And I was telling her, uh, telling her about it. I said, this Jane's book, How to Be a Goldfish is going to be one of those books, right? So, yeah. I have to tell you, Joanna, I did exactly the same thing even before. You know, my daughter, who's about the same age as yours, is even considering having kids. I was collecting books. In fact, <laughs> in university, I was buying Raffi albums and Sharon Lois and Bram. I was into it. And yeah. funny that the, some of the things I bought have stood the test of time. Some of them not so much. Yeah. But it's 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 wonderful. And oh, if you want picture books, I've got some great recommendations. Okay, you can <laughs> tell me when we're we're done. Yeah. Okay, okay. we'll do. So, your book has been published through Scholastic Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I say, um, this podcast is a safe place. And I was wondering, and this may be a little bit political, when I was reading, I was wondering if this book would be available to middle grade readers in some, I'm not saying all, in some U.S. states. And I can even think of a Canadian, maybe a couple of Canadian provinces that wouldn't want this middle grade reader novel in the classroom what do you think have you has that ever come up have you you said that the kid lit genre has been very supportive how have you received any pushback with the subject matter uh no well it's really new so um i'm i'm sure there will be everybody who i know as a writer who's on goodreads gets a couple of good um blasts that, yeah. that aren't kind. Yeah. I would say that, um, so we have a place in Florida yeah. and they have a don't say gay bill. It, this book would not be welcome in Florida, even though it's not a book about um, being gay, straight, lesbian, transsexual. It's nothing about that. It's a no. book about kindness and acceptance. I was just going to um, say acceptance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And letting people be who they are and, and not prejudging. Anyway, it's about kindness. Yeah. But I don't, and, and I'd be very sad to see if that a Canadian province would allow its um, 
government to dictate what children read. It may happen. I would be extremely disappointed, not just for my book, but for children and people in general. But I will defend readership in North America in many ways. Um, There seems to be specific books that um, are targeted for for these kind of book bans. And this may be one of them. But there are also books that have amazing topics that are covered in middle grade alone. Chirp by Kate Messner, hugely popular writer, um, deals with its middle grade, deals with sexual grooming by a gymnastics coach. The Seventh Wish, also by her, which is a fantasy book. Yeah. We've got an older sister in university who's um, seriously drug addicted. Oh, wow. Our own Canadians, King of Jam Sandwiches by Eric Walters, yeah. is this gorgeous new book that won a bunch of awards this year about a, a kid who's living with neglect and a mentally ill parent. Oh, wow. On the line, Paul Kochi and Eric Walters co-wrote this book. It's my favorite book of the year. Um, And it's about uh, a super sporty young kid, 13 or 14, whose parents are getting a divorce because his dad, who's this super big basketball hero, has come out that he's gay. And it's how this kid is dealing with it. It's beautifully written. Um, And then Firefly by Philippa Downing is also beautiful and award-winning. And she's dealing with a severely drug-addicted and neglectful mother. So... And then there's, I mean, historically, Perks of Being a Wallflower has suicide, incest by ant, which is really bizarre in terms of writing. There's just so many of them. Um, I think they're pervasive. I think it's part of um, what's happening now in KidLit because you have, the older we get, the further away we are from those kids we're writing for. And they're dealing with things that we hadn't expected or dealt with when we were their age. Yeah. So what we do by giving them um, a story is, is a mechanism. It's, it's just a, a way that they can see through other people are going to it. There's a voice for it. Is this how I would deal with it? No, that's not how I would deal with it. It's discussions. It's options. Maybe when they don't feel that they can talk to anybody else about things, not to say that, now, I'm just going to come in here and plug myself. Yeah, please Gold, do. Gold, <laughs> no, but Goldfish isn't, isn't sad and it isn't heavy. It's light and it's fun. It just happens to walk around some issues in a positive way. Yeah. Some of these books I've, I've listed do the same thing. Some of them don't. But there is a necessity for kids to be able to find themselves in literature, just as there is a necessity for um an African-American child to be able to see themselves as the hero or a disabled child to see themselves as a hero. We don't just want the same heroes solving the problems all the time in every book. So yeah, we need representation. And that, that includes kids and what they're really going through. Wow. Bam. (laughs) That is a great answer. That is a great answer. Oh, thank you. Because I know when I was reading, you know, after what you know after what lizzie's friend says about you know what happened in toronto um there's another child who sits behind lizzie bethany bethany budge yeah and i was again i was telling my daughter what 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 bethany had said she says a very homo she has this very homophobic response and uh after what bethany says you write, bam, just like that. In the space of a finger snap, the whole classroom went silent. All eyes were on Miss G, waiting to see 
what she do? And I felt that silence. I felt that tension. And, uh, you know, it, like you said, this is a story about kindness and acceptance. And I was thinking to myself, how as adults, how, how can people, because Bethany's response is from what she's heard her grandmother say. That's it. You know? That's exactly right. So Mandela, uh, Nelson Mandela in Long Walk to Freedom wrote this gorgeous quote that I can't do exactly. But basically it said, nobody's born hating. You have yeah. to be taught to hate. And if you're taught to hate, if you can be taught to hate, you can be taught to love. So again, I mean, you're a writer, so you know all this. I don't want to tell the readers this. Yeah. But this is the ground zero point in the novel for seeing that actual quote in action. So Bethany's not hateful. That's just what she's been taught. And by the end, you get to see just a small hint of why her grandmother became so soured in her own life and less tolerant and kind. And you also get to see that that Bethany can be redeemed, not in a mushy kind of sappy way, but she just she just finds that there's another way to be. That's yeah. all I'm going to say, because somebody might read it and it would spoil the ending. So yeah, it's it's not that Bethany's bad. It's what Bethany's been taught. And again, we don't need to teach kids that. And we can unteach them that. We do it unconsciously sometimes. Some of the things that we said as kids. Yeah. I mean, it just, it amazes me that these were phrases out of her mouth. And I think, oh my gosh. So last night, for example, I'm in, I live in Quebec and we're in a French class. Yeah. And we're learning the phrase Indian summer. Yeah, l'été yeah. de, uh, l'été de Indian, I think it was. And I thought, you know, we don't say that anymore. No. But. But we did then. Yeah. And, and there's just small things that you we've done throughout our life that we don't even think of because we are appropriating, reading things into other people's cultures, values, uh, religions, whatever. So, yeah, yeah. We, we can learn. If I can learn at my age, anybody can. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, <laughs> you mentioned about, was it your mother Scottish? Yes. Okay. So this next question is for my critique partner of 20 years, Carol Ann, who has Scottish ancestry. Okay. Now you quote, <laughs> you're the only, you and Carol Ann are the only ones I've heard say this. Okay. Way to go, Carol Ann. <laughs> okay. So from your, your novel, we have, this is Lizzie. I wished with all my heart that Bethany would just hush up but I've never been able to wish Bethany Budge away. It's like grandma always said, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. That's for you, Carol Ann. <laughs> Jane, can you explain? Carol Ann will love that. She knows the meaning, you know the meaning, but for all the other listeners, what, what, what does that saying, what does that saying mean? <laughs> These were two things that both my mother said and my absolute favorite teacher of all time, Mrs. Irene Wadalis used to say, basically, you know, if you could, if wishes came true then you would have a different life. So if, instead of sitting on the street with my hand out as a beggar, I'd be riding a horse and going where I want to go. <laughs> and her other big one was um, something about my fat aunt. Okay. Or if my aunt had wheels, she'd be a bus. Okay. Oh, but that's not very nice. My, my aunt wasn't fat, by the way. She was a very tiny little lady. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So there you go, Carol Ann. There you like go, a, Carol Ann. When I read that, I just thought, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Does Carol Ann also say, ah, it's a bra, 
it's a bright bonny night. It's just a, my mother has a very, had a very thick Scottish accent. And when she just said that spit would come out of her mouth, it was delightful. Okay. So I'm not going to ask a question. And if you hear me mute myself, it's because the dogs have woken up again. Okay. So I'm not going to ask a question about this, but let's, let's discuss Cameron, the mom's boyfriend. Cameron believes all boys should play sports. But little David, David likes movies. He likes comic books. And I have witnessed a conversation when a father, a a very nice man, okay, was concerned that his son might be gay because he liked art, writing, comics, and he didn't like sports. And A, there's nothing wrong with being gay, being trans, being lesbian. That's, That's nothing wrong with that. You know, everyone has different interests. So just because you don't like something doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Absolutely. And we don't, we don't uh, need to be like our parents. So there's a book I mentioned earlier on the line by Paul Kochia and Eric Walters. It has, um, this is the one with the, the dad who comes out and the, the marriage falls apart. Yeah, The dad is a massively big basketball star and his new boyfriend is also a massively big basketball star and a butcher. And I mean, it's just breaking all the stereotypes. Yeah, It's fantastic. But the, for me, one of the interesting things, um, it's an issue statement. Yes, yeah. everything that you mentioned is completely true, but um, it's fun talking to other writers because they get all this. So yeah. it's also, um, for me, it was a strong point of character development for Cameron Kelch. He's the antagonist. Yeah. He's clearly homophobic, but he can't see it in himself. He criticizes these protests that are coming down the street, but he's, he claims that it's not about who the marches are because I'm not homophobic. He actually says that. Yeah. He says it's, they're just disrupting his business. Yeah. So he does suggest life would be easier if they stayed in the closet, but I kind of did that to both show his homophobia and also to introduce an actual quote from an actual newspaper editor at the time. But the thing about this is that it's, Kelch is more worried about this than David um, because he's a homophobe. I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing we put on our kids. I have a friend who used to say that it was a sign of respect if their disrespect, if their children didn't choose to vote the same way as their, as their parents and their grandparents, because that was something that if I taught you well, you would believe you would go to my church or my synagogue. You would believe what I believe and you would vote in who I vote voted for. My, my dad taught me a little differently. Yeah. He said, you've got to think for yourself. You've yeah. got to figure out what's important to you. And in fact, <laughs> like I told somebody else this recently, when I was um, interested in becoming as involved, the church as all my friends were maybe grade nine and grade 10, my dad said, you have to realize that um, the, you're in the minority if you choose Christianity. And I grew up in Oakville, Ontario. So, oh, 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 no, I'm not. Yeah. I said, no, but look around you. Most of the world, you, we are not the major population. We have Africa, we have um, Asia. There are different philosophies and ways of thinking. So if you really want to make an interesting and educated choice, go educate yourself. Go learn what it's like to be Buddhist, to be Muslim, to be oh, Jewish. Wow. And I went and did it as best as you could back then when you didn't have the internet. But yeah. um, so different to Kelch, who just figures that he is okay and he's grown up fine and David should do what I do because I'm a good role model. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if a parent just said, you know what, what do you love? How can I help you do that? Yeah. Yeah. 
Not that I was great at that all the time as a parent, but you know, looking back, I think that's a great thing to be. Yeah, I agree. my daughter is that kind of a parent, by the way. She's fabulous. Aww. Yeah. Well, the other thing you write about, there were just little. I know they say little Easter eggs. I could like to think of them as little gems. Um, I think our parents and grandparents all had tins of some sort. Okay. Now, Lizzie's mom finds an old biscuit tin. My mom had a tin full of miscellaneous buttons. And they were just any, you know, a button would fall off. Now, here's a woman who grew up as a teenager during World War II. You know, so she came from a different background and you saved everything. So you don't have a button jar? No, I don't. I don't. (laughs) I kind of wish I do. I did. Right. But any little button that fell off, it went in this tin. And this tin was. And so if you ever needed a button, you could usually sometimes find very close to the exact one in mom's tin. Right. And I just remember as a kid, it was neat just rifling through this tin and seeing all the different buttons. Okay. I so, wish I lived close enough to you to send you this dress. I have a dress that I bought because of buttons. It was oh, just really? this little Spanish thing and it's got buttons of all different sizes and colors sewn all over it. It's spectacular. I wish I'd worn it today. Anyway. You should send me a picture because I'll send you a picture. Yeah. Cause my <laughs> sister who's a sewist, she would even love to see, see the oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Easy peasy. Okay. So do you have any, well, you, do you have a, it sounds like a button jar. Do you have any tin that's special yeah. to you? We did. We had one. It was my husband's grandmother's and it, she used to make him molasses cookies with raisins. It was his favorite thing. And we inherited it and it moved all around the world with us. It's lived in the Middle East, in England, in the Netherlands. And I don't know where it is. Somehow in the last move, maybe I gave it to somebody with something in it. I don't know. But I, as soon as you mentioned that, I think, you know what? I don't know where that tin is. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. That's okay. That's okay. We hang on to things a long time. Hopefully yeah. somebody has it and loves it too. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you hoping the middle-aged readers, and I'm going to say and adults, yeah. adults take away Thanks. from your novel? You might as well be kind. It doesn't cost anything. And it gives you a lovely feel-good residue each time you try. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So you said Harry Potter, it was a game changer for you. And and why was that? For exactly what you said. Um, when, when Harry Potter came out, it wasn't just kids reading it. Parents started to read it too. Yeah. And I think it started um, a bit of a snowball. And there are now more and more adults reading middle grade and YA. And there are middle grade and YA that are worth reading. Uh, Tuck Everlasting, The Lie Tree by Tess Hardage, La Belle Sauvage by Philip Pullman. These are all, well, the last two um, won the Costa Book Award in England, which is the only two that it's ever gone to children's writers. They're, okay. they're beautiful books, well-written, though I think Tuck Everlasting might be my favorite. Okay. I think it's perfect. Okay. I'll have to check these out. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So what's next? What, what's, what are you working on next? What, what's going on now? Well, I'm working on a YA thriller set in Brazil and Maine, if you can believe it, Ooh. and yeah, it's gone through a number of titles. I sent it to my agent last uh, June or July. She came back with some, well, some suggestions. And so now I'm I'm working on them. But as you know, it's a butterfly effect. You change one action a child does, it's 
in the book. And then you think, okay, well, why is that changed? Why is it different? And then you find yourself rewriting the whole thing. So I'm at the, towards the end of the rewriting phase, but for me, it's, it's exciting because I'm writing this sort of book I wanted to read as a teen with a, you know, a kick-ass female heroine who's, you know, yeah. just going to take numbers and make sure everybody gets what they deserve. Yeah. yeah. Um, also the kind of girl I imagine myself to be, but yeah, hey. yeah, 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 but I'm also very excited because I've lived all over the world and I've traveled all over the world. So these places that I'm writing about, um, I've been to yeah. and they have an impact on me. And Brazil, I actually have, I couldn't find them when we were there, but I have family. My mother's cousins emigrated to, or, yeah, emigrated to Brazil. And yeah, anyway, so including settings and places and the feeling of what it's like to, to be traveling around the world and being an expat or being a student in another, uh, yet another international school. This is the kind of thing I'm having fun doing at the moment. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So wrapping this up, my dogs are behaving somewhat well. Um, Beautifully. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to add that I may have missed Jane? Well, I'd like to ask you a question actually. How do you do it? How do you juggle your new books coming out or writing your new books when you're launching the ones um, that are coming out? I mean, you're, you have to go back and think about something you wrote at least a year or so ago before you type the end and you're trying to work on something new, but that's, you've got to go back and talk about something that you finished writing ages ago. I'm just, I feel like I've got, um, I don't know, ADHD. I'm just like this all the time. I can't seem to concentrate on one or the other. How do you do it? Well, being retired has helped, has helped. Yeah. I was retired in January. Um, Congratulations. I think it's because I'm such a creature of habit. When I retired, I didn't, I'll admit, I kind of felt a little lost, you know, because I worked in an office. So I, that, the, uh, not regulation, what am I trying to say here? The routine. The routine. Thank you. So the routine of, I have to be there by eight. I leave at 4.30. You know, you do that for 34 years for the government. And then all of a sudden you retire and now, wow, I have this time. I still have the habit of sometimes taking on a little too much. Okay, I'll admit it. Um, But what I decided was, okay, let's just start our day at 8. And we work till 4.30. And I, yeah, I do. I have different, like I have different things I need to do. You know, like after our our interview, I will be doing up podcast questions. What I really do try to do is first thing in the morning is work on my own writing. You know, because I I find the early mornings and when I'm really tired at night is the best writing time. (laughs) Right. I, I don't know why. <laughs> you know? So uh, usually early mornings is writing. Um, the afternoon, I'm not too good with my own writing. So that's where I will do podcast questions or tweak podcasts or put podcasts together. Um, I have to admit, my I don't like cooking a lot. <laughs> and uh, my spouse for the last 34 years, he pretty much makes all our dinners. So it's not like I have to get up at 3.30 to 
make a roast or put a roast in or, or do anything like that, you know? So I, I'm fortunate that way. I, I do the cleanup after and I look after the dogs and <laughs> yeah. So I think but that I, answers your question. It very much does. And it, it's interesting. It's, my daughter told me that we are very good. We are as humans, very good at in the morning, early in the morning, getting things done. We get, we do our tasks. And for me, my task like you is writing. So I do my best. Okay. Forward motion in the novel. Where am I today? Where do I need to go? That happens in the morning. And she said, but you're more creative in the afternoon and later. And I think, okay, I don't, first of all, I didn't believe it. And then I realized that as I'm going throughout the rest of my day, because I can't seem to work past, I get up usually around 536 and work till maybe 11 or noon. The afternoon, I'm done. I can't yeah. think about the book. I'm just writing terrible things, so I just walk away. Yeah. But I'm doing other things. I don't do a podcast. That's an awful lot of work. Congratulations to you. Okay. <laughs> but, but I do things that let my head um, reset, and yeah. without even thinking about it, plot problems are thought, solved or yeah. character problems are discovered. And yeah, so it's the mechanical things you do in the afternoon, the letters you have to write, the yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So maybe we all are alike, just like my daughter said. Hmm. Well, well, it was, I was walking the dogs and I can have this scene in my book where I have a podcaster and some things need to be discovered about a podcast recording. And I've, you know, I've been working on rewrites thinking, okay, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to work this into the the book? It has to be worked into the book, you know? And as I'm walking the dogs, it just, it then hit me. It's like, your heroine listens to his podcast. She's getting these emails sent to her about information with regards to the murderer. Why doesn't she get an email? <laughs> and it just, like you said, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It fit. And then I'm like, yeah. Because if we don't do that, what we're doing is we're, we've got these characters, we know where we want to go, whether we're really a truly a plant plotter or a pantser, we just really know where the, where the next thing has to be or how it has to end up. But yeah. we're, we're doing this to them, we need them to move themselves. Once they start walking on their own, that sounds so airy fairy, but it's true. Once they start moving on their own and telling us what they want, then you have a book that people want to turn the pages because they're with your character. They're not being manipulated by this overseeing hand of the writer. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm yeah, glad you fun, asked eh? me that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's really cool. And it's it's neat to know that because we do this pretty much, you well, you get to talk to writers, which is delightful, but we pretty much do this on our own, right? We sit up yeah. in our little Aries and, and concoct stories and live in the world of our characters without a lot of human interaction, yeah. unless except with our, you know, families and friends. So nice to talk to other writers it is isn't it yeah, okay it is. yeah. okay jane this was fantastic thank it you it was a lot of fun thanks joanna and to your father-in-law <laughs> okay jane cheers okay bye-bye